week we started our study in the epistle of James. And uh, I, was, I was pleasantly pr- pleased with the feedback uh, that I received regarding the uh, epistle of James. And I want to ask a question. I want to begin by asking a question this morning. And that question is, does God have a purpose in trials? Does God have a purpose in trials? This is an age-old question that has been asked time and time again. The psalmist in Psalm 10.1 asks a very similar question. The psalmist asks, Why dost thou stand afar off, O Lord? Why dost thou hide thyself in times of trouble? In Psalm 13.1, the psalmist asks again, How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? And the question always goes, why do, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? And they suffer trials. They suffer testings. They suffer temptations. Well, James attempts to answer this in this epistle. As a matter of fact, as soon as we embark into the epistle, James tackles the issue of trials. As we're going to see in our text today, James is going to confront us with very practical spiritual truth. And James is writing this to a group of believers that are being persecuted. Isn't that interesting? They're not overwhelmed with their jobs. They're not in persecution because they don't know what career choice to make. These are people who are suffering for the faith. And James is going to speak to them. And he's going to let them know that no suffering, no trial, is the result of happenstance or circumstance. But rather, God has a very definite plan for his children. And God does have a purpose. And that that purpose through trials is really this, to produce unwavering faith in God. To produce unwavering faith in God. And for us to learn that God is sovereign in everything, that God is even sovereign in trials. And God is producing for the believer an eternal weight of glory. This epistle is, challenges the believer. It challenges the believer to genuine saving faith. I want to say that again. This epistle challenges the believer to genuine saving faith. Empty professions of salvation, empty professions of God do nothing. But what happens when you're tried? When you're tried, do you find yourself mostly going back to the Lord? Do you find yourself praying to the Lord? Do you, try, uh, do you find yourself burying yourself in the promises of God in times of trials and testing? Well, that bears fruit. That bears evidence of true, genuine, saving faith. James' premise in this epistle is this. True Saving faith bears fruits of righteousness. Empty professions don't. Genuine salvation 
does. It brings forth fruits of righteousness. And that's why as we read this epistle, as we study this epistle of James, we're going to find very, very practical, practical truth that James brings forth. James begins this epistle in chapter 1, as I mentioned, speaking of trials, and that's where we're going to find ourselves today. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6. And we're going to see from our text that God works through trials. And I want you to note something. It is trials, plural, not trial, not a singular trial. It's a plural, which means that in the Christian life, for the most part, we can rightly expect to have many trials. And his premise is this, is that God works through trials, and he produces three byproducts. Number one, God produces godly perseverance. Godly perseverance. Number two, trials produce godly perfection. Godly perfection. And number three, Trials produce a godly perspective. And we're going we're gonna to see this as we go through the, t- uh, the text. Now, as I did last week, I want to put forth again a warning, a caveat. I know that many of you experience trials. Maybe some of you right now are in the midst of a trial or a test. I don't want anybody to believe that I'm being flippant with this, that this is just an ABC type of formula. In addition to what we're going to see in the text today, God works things individually in our lives to conform us into the image of Christ. So I don't want anybody here thinking, oh, that's great. You have no idea what I'm talking about. What you're saying doesn't work. What I want you to know is that These are but some of the byproducts that God works about in the heart of the believer. So let's look at the first one, godly perseverance. Look with me at James 1, verses 2 and 3. uh, James writes as follows, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and this is the first point we see trials produce godly perseverance now i want you to just flip over to the gospel of luke hold yourself in james 1 but i want you to flip over to the gospel of luke for a moment specifically luke chapter 8 luke chapter 8 and here we see our lord And he's teaching the parable of the sower. Hey, that rings a bell. Anybody with us on Tuesday night as we went through the parable of the sower? By the way, Tuesday nights, we're now, we finished our study on end times. We're now going into the parables of Christ, the parables of Christ found in the Gospels. And Tuesday night, we just went through this, the parable of the sower. In Luke 8, verse 13, 
the Lord talks about those on whom the seed was sown on rocky ground. And that, as we saw in the parable, if you look at 8.13, and those on rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these having no firm root, they believe for a while, and in time of temptation, fall away. Now I want to bring that out to you here. Number one, this is the Lord is sowing seed. The seed is the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And if you know anything about the parable, some seed falls on the hard ground and the birds come and snatch it away. Other seed falls on rocky soil. And rocky soil does not mean a field sown with rocks. It simply means that they're soil but there's an underlying layer of rock. It's underlying. Can't, the farmer doesn't see it. The plow didn't reach it. It's an underlying. But what happens? They receive the word. The seed falls. They receive the word. They receive it with joy. Those are the ones that come in and we think, oh, that person's a Christian. That person's a Christian. They receive the word with joy. But something happens. What happens? Jesus tells us right here. They have no firm root. And so they believe for a while. But it is during times of temptation that they fall away. They fall away. They were never Christ. They only look like it until pressure, temptation, trial, and testing came into their life. You know, one of the purposes of trials and testing, trials and testing show those who are really Christ and those who are not. Nobody's ever going to die for something they don't believe in. Nobody's going to stand in faith and stay with the Lord when things are going wrong and when situations come pressing around them. That word temptation there actually means pressure. It's pressure. It's, it's built-up pressure. Jesus said this, When the worries of the world come and the deceitfulness of riches come, what happens? It chokes the word away. And one of the primary reasons for this is that we as believers, that the world has its tentacles wrapped around our ankles and around our arms. And we become so accustomed like thinking like the world and behaving like the world rather than thinking like the Lord. So God will use a trial. God will use a test. God will use a moment. Go back to James 1. I want to show you a few key words here in James 1, verses 2 and 3. James says this, Consider it all joy. Oh, man. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's an, that's an odd thing right there. 
You should be happy when you encounter, and I want you to note the term, various trials, multiple trials, times of testing that come into your life that take you unaware. Now, James is writing of people that are already being persecuted. You may want to say to him, why would he say consider it joy? Well, he says consider it joy as we're going to see through the rest of the text. Consider it joy. Why? Because the trial is going to produce something godly in you. It's going to produce godly fruit. To the believer... God always works and God always accomplishes for good, for God's good in our life. He does that through suffering. He does that through good times. God is always working His good in the life of the believer. That term considerate joy means considerate an occasion for joy. How many of you have gone into a trial, have gone into a test, all of a sudden you're overwhelmed and you go, hallelujah, I get to go through a trial, a test. I get to suffer for Christ. Barbara and I have some dear friends back in New York. Uh, They're actually in Pennsylvania now, but they were with us in our church in New York. And I'll never forget this. She was telling me her father died of cancer. And she, she made this statement, I'll never forget it. She said, when the father was diagnosed with terminal cancer, he called the family together. And he said these words to the family. God has entrusted me with cancer. Believe that? God has entrusted me with cancer. Those are eyes of faith, eyes of faith that are focused on eternity, eyes of faith that are focused on what God is doing in that person's life. And because that person was a believer, he did not fear the cancer. He felt God has blessed him with this opportunity now to deal with cancer and that his family would see his fidelity and faithfulness to Christ until the end. And you know what? That's exactly what they saw. They saw faithfulness, fidelity. God was working in this particular person in eternal weight of glory. We know a few weeks, a few months ago, I gave out the book about the various modern day martyrs. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. I hope you do. I hope that when we give you material and we give it to you for free, that you don't just put it on a bookshelf somewhere, but that you would read it. But if you have read it, you will read the story of those that have been beaten, those that have been imprisoned, those that have suffered, those that were sick, those who lost husbands, wives, children for the sake of the gospel, and there is one common denominator. They all bless God. They all exalt God because they know that one day God will indeed bring it all together for His good and for His glory. So the Apostle says, Consider it all joy, brethren, 
when you encounter. That word encounter, the King James, it says when you fall, it gives the meaning, it, it, it denotes the meaning of actually stumbling into a trial. Notice that it's not planned. Notice that it's not seasonal. Hey, spring is the time for me to go through seasons of testing. I don't know about you, but every single time that I've encountered a trial or a situation, it appears just like that. Out of the blue, I stumble into it. And that is the first moment that brings perplexity, does it not? That is the moment that we as believers are extremely vulnerable when we stumble into the situation. And now our mind is saying, what is going on? How could this have happened? What am I to do? There are no answers. There's only questions that are there. That's what he's saying here. Consider it joy when you stumble into, when you encounter various different kinds of trials. And James is, is very precise in that James states that such trials will, for the believer, produce something of eternal value. And what is that that it is going to produce? It's going to produce endurance. This is an endurance that is of our natural ability, right? I don't know if any of you have ever trained. When I was young, much thinner, and I used to train for football, it always began with the thing I hate the most, running. I hate running. Can't stand it. Never liked it. It was always painful. But one of the things that about training is I may have started out day one running three-quarters of a mile, but I would push that to a mile, and then a mile and a half, and then two miles, and then three miles, and anything after that was just sheer gravy. But what was I doing? I was training my body to build up endurance. The same is true of weightlifting. If you ever weightlifted, you don't start day one with 300 pounds. You may start day one with 90 pounds. But through your training, you will build up strength. But unlike physical endurance, trials produce in the believer spiritual endurance, godly perseverance, the ability to hold on, the ability to trust God, to the ability to say, I can do this, even if it means you are hanging by your fingernails. You ever get that? You ever been in a trial so deep, so overwhelming, that you could not pray? You ever been there? You ever been in a situation where the only thing you can utter out of your mouth is, God help me. God help me. And you, you search for the words and the words don't come. And you're there and you cry out and you just say, God help. 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 Well, that may happen on your first trial, your second trial. But God is producing in the heart of the believer this spiritual endurance, this godly perseverance, this perseverance that enables us to trust God more and more. Endurance is the characteristic of one who is unmoved by their affliction, 
unmoved from their deliberate purpose and their loyalty of faith and piety by even the greatest trial, the greatest suffering. This world defines us this word defines a strong response and it's not a passive response to trial it's not oh well i'm suffering what are you going to do this is a strong response of faith a strong response that cries out to god that believes god at his word that may say, Lord, I may be suffering right here, but I believe you. I think of the words of Job. Probably no one in the Bible suffered more than Job and, and the intensity and the frequency of his suffering. But Job cries out, He knows the path that I will take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth pure as gold. The trial or test is temporary. It produces endurance. That endurance does a work of sanctification. That endurance produces in the believer. It's edifying for the believer. And that endurance and that result has both an eternal benefit and an earthly benefit. An earthly value in that it builds faith up and strength in Christ. An eternal value is that it showcases faith in Christ. Listen to the words of Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby writes this, Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then our trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter and not better. Trials in a believer's life do indeed have a purpose. And it is a purpose for the kingdom of God. God causes believers to bear up under the load, to bear up under the load to draw on all the resources of Christ, that it would be His strength, His glory, shining out of the ones being tested. There are no accidents and there are no coincidences in the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? You might be passing through a trial today. You might be struggling with issues, maybe multiple issues. Maybe you're undergoing multiple trials. There are no accidents in the kingdom of God. And may I add something else too? It is critical for the church to know that God is indeed sovereign. Now, we, we say this all the time. God is sovereign. I believe God is sovereign. But it always seems that God is sovereign except when it comes to me. But God is sovereign in all things god is sovereign in the trial god is sovereign in the testing god is sovereign in illness god is sovereign in every area of our lives there is nothing that befalls us that causes god to go what 
You mean to tell me this is happening to them? And let me add something else. Let me add something else. Be careful of giving the devil all the glory. Be careful of seeing the devil behind every rock. Be careful of having this dualistic view where everything good is of God and everything bad is of the devil. Does not the Word of God teach us that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light? Does the Bible not teach us that God is indeed, that there is no one who could say to God, what hast thou done? Or anyone who could ward off God's hand. Let me share something with you. Keep this in mind. Satan is a servant of God. You understand that? He is not sovereign. He is not omniscient. He is not not omnipresent. Satan is a servant of God. When we look at Job, we see Satan running around the courts of heaven and Satan goes to God. And what does God say? Be it done as thou say, but you can't do this. How did he get Job? He didn't just walk up to Job and start ripping things out. God allowed him. Now to many of you, that may not make sense. Many of you are saying, wait, what are you saying, Pastor? You mean, you know, this thing happened to me. This was the worst thing that could ever happen. God has allowed it if, if you are saved and if you are in Christ. The Bible tells us that the steps of the righteous are ordered. They are ordered by God. The steps of the righteous. If I can encourage you to to read any Christian book, if you have not done so today, I would encourage you to read this book. A Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And if you don't like reading Old English, they have contemporary translations. If you don't like reading a long book, hey, they have it animated where you get the gist of it. But I want to tell you something. Read A Pilgrim's Progress, and it's the journey, it's an, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And Christian is the main character. And he's, he's trying to get this load off of his back, which is the weight of sin. And he's trying to make his way to the celestial city, which is heaven. And on his way, he grows, goes through various trials and testing. And God delivers him from them all. That's an allegory of the Christian life. When I was a young man, I wouldn't know the the delivering hand of God. But now as I'm an old man, and I look back on my life, I was commenting about this early this morning to the few that were here. Now that I'm an old man, I could look back at my life and I say, oh my goodness, the time I made that left turn, if I made the right turn, 
what would have happened? I would have ended up in a bad situation. And the time I made this decision that pushed me in the right direction versus the other decision, and the time I was being pressured by friends to do that which was sinful and that which was wrong, and the many times I stumbled and I failed. How did God deliver me? He did not deliver me according to my wisdom. God's hand was upon me even when I was a sinner. Because God had ordained, God had chosen me unto salvation and therefore God orchestrated every step of my life to bring me to faith and Christ and to bring me home to glory for His purpose. You know when God's done with me? I'll tell you when God's done with me. He's done with me the day I die. Not by default, because all that he purposed for me to do in Christ Jesus was complete. He who began a good work in you. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will continue to do so until the day of Jesus Christ. God is indeed sovereign in everything. Let's look at the second the second principle that trials produce. And this is the second one. The trials produce godly perfection. Godly perfection. Look at verse 4. In verse 3, he tells us it produces endurance. In verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials produce endurance, which creates godly perfection. And this endurance is not without purpose or benefit. Let me say that again. This endurance is not without purpose or benefit. God does not call us to bear under the load for the sake of bearing under the load. You follow what I'm saying? God doesn't cause us to go through tests or trials because God is sadistic in some kind of manner. No, God calls us and grants us His strength and His perseverance to produce something in us. What is that that He produces? Well, James says, let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect now i can speak for me i can't speak for you but i can tell you i'm perfect blasphemy heretic why am i perfect because christ has atoned for my sins is that what james is speaking about well Not exactly. Perfect here speaks of consummation. It's completeness and maturity. That's what the perfect that he's speaking about. James tells us in bearing up under such trials, God works maturity and completeness in the believer. That's perfect faith. God is in the process of perfecting the believer. 
and this completeness, this wholeness cannot be accomplished without trials. I remember in the 70s, some of you may go, what was that? Well, the 70s, I was a young man. But there used to be a song. The song used to be called Through It All. And in the song, there was a portion of the song that said this, for if I never knew a, a problem, I never knew that he could solve them. I never knew what faith in God could do. We are perfected. We are perfected in times of testing, times of trial. John Piper says this, I've never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come in times of ease and comfort. Did you hear that? The really lessons of life have not come in times of ease or comfort. But I have heard many saints say every significant advance I ever made in grasping the depth of God's love and growing deep with Him have come through suffering. Notice what James goes on to say, that you may be perfect and complete. And not only is the result of trials maturity, but he also says it is completeless, lacking nothing. Basically, that means that you're made whole. That through the trial, God is making you whole. And this, this form of being made whole is a 360 degree wholeness. It's not partial. It's the consummation of work that God is doing in the believer's life. God does have a very defined purpose in trials and testing that many times we cannot see but that is working for us in eternal weight of glory. Here's some scripture. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the Apostle Paul says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and your soul and body be preserved and complete without blame, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be complete, whole. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul writes again, For the momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison the trial works for us our lives works for us in eternal weight of glory look at first peter five ten, as peter also writes to a church that is suffering notice peter's words and after you have suffered for a little while the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself watch the words here will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is working in the believer, godly perfection. And James emphasizes this point of maturity and completeness through trials by adding at the end of this verse, 
this three words. Lacking in nothing. Did you ever think it was odd that Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith and lists all the Old Testament champions? Did you ever think it was odd that what is talked about is their sufferings? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned as him as righteousness. When did Abraham believe God? You think it had something to do when God said, take your son up to Mount and sacrifice him to me? And Abraham got the lad up in the morning, Genesis 22 tells us, got the lad up, brought the wood for the sacrifice, brought everything, and as they're there to go make the sacrifice before the Lord, his son, who God said, take your son, take your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. That when he was told his servants, you wait here, and the lad and I will go up yonder, he laid out the altar, and Isaac was going, uh, Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God himself shall provide the lamb. And the writer of Hebrews says that he believed that God was able to do and perform and Beyond anything he could say, and he raised the knife, and the angel of the Lord stayed his hand. And God said, you have proven yourself faithful. You believe God at his word. Abraham believed God when? When he was rich? When he was wealthy? No, he believed God in the trial. It is scattered all over church history. I've said this many times. You talk about the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul. You talk about the martyrdom of Peter. And as Peter saw the cross laid out before him, Peter makes a statement, I'm not worthy to die my Savior's death. I beseech thee, therefore crucify me upside down. And the Romans were all too thrilled to do it. And so Peter was crucified upside down. And the last recorded words of history of Peter was, as he looks at his life, he sa- his wife, he says this, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. Peter believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul, right before his Christ, uh, crucific- uh, beheading, writes to Timothy and he writes these words, hey, I fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge shall give me on that day, and not only me, but to all who love his appearing. He knew he was going to die. Church history records that when Paul was released from the dungeon, that he was released unshackled. You know he converted the guards. Did you know that? The guards were converted. They loved him. He was released unshackled. There he saw the chopping block. There he knew that's where he was going to meet his end. There he saw the executioner. And church history records that he did not waver in his steps. He didn't have to be dragged there. He did not cry. Right before the chopping block, he asked if he would be able to say a prayer. He kneeled down and he prayed. And unassisted, 
He put his head on the chopping block, closed his eyes on earth, and woke up in the presence of God. Paul believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And there are many in this day, many all over, those in Muslim nations, those in communist nations, believers in North Korea, those languishing in prisons, who believe God, and it is reckoned to them as righteousness, and that belief comes forth in what? It comes forth in their trial. And so we as believers, who are not facing that type of animosity yet, we are facing a different kind. We're being ostracized from the culture. And we're being overwhelmed by that. Oh my Lord, look what's happening to us. But God has given us the opportunity through trials, through sufferings, through testings. And I don't say this lightly. To hold fast to Christ. That it would be said of each and every one of us that Janet believed God and it was reckoned to her as righteousness and Ricky believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and and. Al believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Why? Because God has intended something far greater than this world. And we have to have those eyes of faith. We have to have those eyes believing, look, this is not it. Every day almost it appears you see the famous and the beautiful people who have achieved such stature in life. They have money. They have fame. They have everything. And what are they doing? Blowing their brains out and hanging themselves because there is no meaning. We, if we are a believer in Christ, God has called us to something far greater. And even though these momentary light afflictions produce in us an eternal weight of glory. Brother or sister, if you're going through a trial, if you're going through a time of testing, my admonition, the admonition of Scripture, the admonition of the Holy Spirit, hold fast to Christ. Because it is producing in you an eternal weight of glory. Again, John Piper makes this statement. God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display His supreme excellence in all spheres of life. The wasted life is a life without this passion. You hear that? The wasted life is a life that does not have that passion for Christ. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not so that we make much of us, but to make much of of Him in every part of our life. Quickly, the third result of trials is godly perspective. But if any of you lack wisdom, verse 5, Let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Trials produce a unique, godly perspective, and that perspective is found in the wisdom of God. 
It's during times of trials at the onset that we find ourselves not understanding what is happening and why it is happening. That is the time of perplexity. And that is the time as a believer we are most vulnerable to the advances and to the onslaught of the enemy because the trial by God is used to edify us and build us up in Christ. But Satan's intent is what? That we would crumble underneath it. That we would curse God in the midst of the trial. When we are going through trials, it is then that we need godly wisdom from above. James defines that godly wisdom in James 3.17. James writes this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. That's the wisdom of God. So what does James say? James doesn't say that the wisdom of God is going to tell us precisely why we're going through such a thing. It's not what he says. He says we need that divine wisdom, that godly perspective. Listen, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. There goes the human wisdom. Chuck it. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will direct your path. Many times people say to me, I don't know what the will of God is. I don't know what the will of God is. Should I take this job? Shouldn't I take this job? Should I move? Should I not move? What's the will of God? And I say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will direct your paths. He will make your path straight, another version says. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James recognizes that believers have questions at times of trial. And as I previously mentioned, that is a time when believers are most vulnerable. But yet James states this is an opportune time. It's an opportune time. You don't understand? Ask God. Ask God. I want to show you a few things in this last verse here, verse Verse 5, I don't think we'll have time to get to verse 6. James says this, let him ask of God. Now, I want to just tell you that in the Greek, the verb tense there is in what is called the present imperative. The present imperative is a command. In other words, James is not making a suggestion. That's what I want you to know. He's not saying it's a good idea if you ask God. James is saying, do you lack knowledge? Do you lack wisdom in this trial? Ask God. That's what he's telling him. It's a command. Before we seek out anyone else, before we run to anybody else, 
before we go to our confidence, we're to come and we're to ask God. Ask God. And he goes on to say, what happens if we ask God for wisdom? Well, James answer it. God gives to all men generously, or your Bible may say liberally or with liberality. Notice this. Ask God for those who ask. God gives generously, gives liberally. He does not hold back. He doesn't give you small portions. He says if you ask, God is abundant in loving kindness and grace. And he is compassionate. That word generously speaks of singleness of heart. Singleness of heart. He's going to do it with a singleness of heart. Doing something unconditionally. That's what generously is. And the singleness of heart is of God. And all we have to do is ask, and he grants it with overabundance. He grants it with overabundance. And the question then becomes, will God withhold from us? And he answers that. He says that God gives to all men generously and without reproach. This is an interesting thing here. The thought is that the Lord will never cast reproach on anyone who comes to him asking wisdom. Any believer who comes to him. So the Lord's not going to go, why should I answer your question? You're a dirty, filthy, wretched sinner. Just the opposite. We come to the Lord. He'll give it to us overwhelmingly and abundantly. We do not have to be fearful if we are his child. God will not remind us how undeserving we are. Let me say that again. God will not remind us how undeservedly we are. He will not remind us, oh, you failed this time, you failed that time, you failed the other time. Oh, you don't do this, you don't do that. In the trial to the believer in Christ, God will pour out wisdom in abundance. I'm running out of time. We're not going to get to verse 6, but with this I want to close. Verse 6, I'm just going to tell you this. He says, let them ask, but let them ask in faith, not doubting. I just want to make a particular point here. Faith is not telling God what to do. Can we agree with that? Oh, Father, I'm in this trial. You must do this. That's not faith. Faith is not wavering in purpose and intent. Oh, I trust God all my life, but this time I'm going to do it this way. And faith is not self-pity. Can I share something with you? Self-pity is a sin. Do you know that? When you sit there and you go, woe is me, I feel so sorry for myself, that is a sin. That That is the ultimate in unbelief. Because you're implying that God doesn't have any good intention toward you. So he doesn't have compassion for me, so I stand all alone. James states we can't come to God with doubt. Doubt refers to being at variance with oneself. 
You know, it's kind of like, yes, no, yes, no. It's hesitate. Doubting is unbelief manifested. That's what doubting is. It's unbelief manifested. Now you don't believe, now you have put it forward. And it is the prayer of the righteous that God answers. Not the prayer of the doubting. We'll continue more on verse 6. So I believe this is really important, but I want to just close with this. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Paul states this. And not only this, but we exult in tribulations. There's the joy that James talks about, right? Paul says we exult in tribulations. Knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, there's the endurance that James speaks about. And perseverance, proven character, there's the perfection that James speaks about. And proven character, hope, there's the faith that James speaks about. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. At the onset of this epistle, James makes it abundantly clear that God has a very specific purpose for the presence of trials in a believer's life. Very specific. And while God is at work in the believer's life with specific purposes, James shows us that God is producing godly perseverance, godly perfection, and godly perspective. Perseverance builds spiritual endurance. Perfection yields spiritual completeness and wholeness in the believer. And godly perspective of trials is being poured out through the wisdom of God that God grants. Now, this is for the believer in Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, you know nothing of this. I don't say that with joy. I say that with anguish. And if you're not a believer in Christ, you're going to be like the one on whom the seed was sown on rocky soil. That when the the pressures of the world came, when persecution came, when the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world came, it comes and it chokes the word away. Choking the word away means the word away means you're lost in your spiritual estate. And God's will is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you are not in Christ today, if you don't hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, if Jesus Christ is a part-time occupation in your heart and in your mind, then I implore you, I beg you, come to Christ and be saved. Come to Christ and be saved. Listen, you could go through the worst trial ever. You could be tortured and killed for your faith. But you will go to heaven 
and you will be welcomed by a Savior. But you can't go to heaven not coming to the place where you have surrendered, repented of your sins, and cried out to God for mercy, and by faith received the grace of God. If you're unsure, will you do that today? Will you cry out to Christ and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord. I know I sin. I turn from my sin. I repent. And I cry out to Christ, come and save me. He will truly save you. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.